you would be with us this morning, uh, that your presence would be thin. <laughs> and uh, I, just, I just pray that you'd speak through your word, that you would speak into our hearts, God, that our lives would change uh, this morning, that we would get a clear picture of you. I pray that you'd use Michael, uh, and in Jesus' name I pray, amen. And you may be seated. <clears throat> While you're doing so, if you would turn to First Peter chapter 2. Sea is filling up. That's good. Those those inside jokes from earlier. Um, Second Peter chapter two. We will begin in verse eighteen this morning. Got a question though. Uh, who knows who the very first person to uh, break the four minute mark in the mile was? Anybody know that? He didn't pull a muscle. He did not pull a muscle. That is correct. Or he wouldn't have done so. Anybody know who that was? Roger. Say that again? Bannister. Roger Bannister. Bannister. Now, you know when that was? Year? Decade? 50s. In the 50s. Frank, see, he is on... Roger. An English guy, Brit, broke the the four-minute barrier in the mile. Um, about 25 years later, two other British guys, uh, one named Sebastian Coe, the other named Steve Ovitt, spent four or five years in the limelight of middle-distance running, bettering each other's world record uh, several times over the course of, of several years in the mile, and Sebastian Coe also ran several other middle-distance races. At one time, he held four world records, the 800, the 1,000, the 1,500, and the mile. In the summer of 79, he broke the, the world record over the course of 41 days in the 800, in the 1,500, and the mile. And he was, in the late 70s and early 80s, my hero because I had grand dreams of becoming a track star. You may not think that watching me run bases the other night. But it was true. And I thought, I too can break the four-minute barrier in the mile, or at least, which was probably would have been easier, the two-minute barrier in the 800 meters. But I can do that. And in junior high, I, I ran track. Um, I did not ever break the four-minute mark in the mile or the two-minute mark in the 800. Nonetheless, they were my heroes. And and unlike today where you can get on YouTube and you can get on the Internet and you can watch people do things and you can read about them, um, information about these two British guys was hard to come by. Uh, the wide world of sports on, on Saturday afternoon maybe. Uh, occasionally the newspaper. You could pick up a copy of maybe Sports Illustrated and read about them. But I wanted to know everything about them because I wanted to do what they did. I wanted to know what his strategy was what his tactics were, what kind of shoes he wore, how he breathed, how he trained. As much as I could read about these two guys, and especially Sebastian Coe, I looked up to them because I wanted to imitate them. Well, that was junior high. And uh, sometimes in, in junior high, we don't have quite the stick to that we might want as an adult. And my dreams of becoming a track star gave way and my, my, my idolizing of Sebastian Coe gave way to idolizing of some other men. 
Tom Watson, Tom Kite, Payne Stewart, Ben Crenshaw, and I traded in track shoes for golf clubs somewhere around that era. I didn't endure, didn't persevere. I really believe, you may find this hard to believe, that had I persevered, had I continued to train, that I could have done one of those two things, either broken two minutes in the 800 or four minutes in the mile with time and patience and effort and hard work. But I didn't persevere. I didn't endure the trials because, well, to be quite honest, golf was a little more palatable and a little less strenuous effort than track would have been, put it that way. And then over time, you know, that, that idea of becoming a, a great golf star also faded for things like other time and money sort of got in the way. Wasn't willing to endure what needed to be endured to become a great golfer either. Those things happen in life, but regardless of, of what we choose to do, most of us, whether it's a hobby uh, or a sport or music or even a profession, there are other people in that field that we look up to, that we want to imitate because they've gone before us, they've blazed the trail, they've, they've done what we want to do, and so we want to know how did they do that? What was their method? What was their uh, training regimen like? How do they do what they do? If I wanted to become, you know, a fish person, right? Look to the Browns, right? Learn all I can from Brandon and Howard. The Christian life is, is like that as well. Regardless of, of what we are trying to work on in the Christian life, whether that's behavior, whether that's our thought life, or whether that's uh, working on spiritual disciplines, there's always someone to look to. The good news in the Christian life is, is that someone doesn't change with time. Um, people we might idolize as track stars 25 years ago or 30 years ago, well, there are new people come along to replace them, that train better, have new ways of doing something, can run faster, run farther. There are golfers who can do things that some of those old-timey guys couldn't do, hit the ball farther. The good news about Christianity is we have one person to look to regardless of what we're trying to do in the Christian life, and that's Jesus. No one ever comes along and supplants Him. No one ever comes along and, and pushes Him out of the way and, and breaks any of His records. He is the one person, especially when it comes to living the Christian life amongst difficult circumstances, hard times, persecutions, being cast down, as Scott read earlier. Because, see, we have this, as he read, this treasure in earthen vessels. Because, really, the goal is for him to receive glory and not us. And so we have one to look to. And in, in 1 Peter, what we have been, what we have been seeing is... That in, that in any area of the Christian life, that's who we look to, we've, and we've got this saying, we've got this uh, phrase that I've wanted you to commit to, to memory or at least have an idea of, of what Peter's talking about because everything in here falls back on that phrase. Peter's writing to them and to us 
based on what God has done through the cross, our salvation. He's telling them and us how to live wherever we are, no matter what we're going through. Right? And he has begun, we talked about in a few verses back, that we need to avoid the desires of the flesh and we need to keep our behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that they might glorify God. And now he's taken this long digression and talking about what that behavior is supposed to look like. And that behavior, regardless of the category we find ourselves in, whether that's us relating to the government, to society, to people who have authority over us, husbands and wives, that word submit is how we keep our behavior excellent among the Gentiles. And so, as Peter fleshes out this submission, what he does is he, he takes a break at the end of this section we're going to read today, and he points us to Jesus. Oh, in case you forgot from chapter 1, here's our model. Here's what we're looking at. If you think this is difficult, what I'm calling you to, let me remind you that someone has gone before. If you get to the fourth lap in the mile and you're out of breath and you feel like you're going to die and your lungs are going to explode and you still need to keep running, let me remind you that someone has done this before and done it well, and if you do it the way he did it, everything's going to be okay. And so we read, beginning in verse 18 of chapter 2, Peter writes, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you were healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray together and then we'll look at this. Father, we thank You for Your Word and the truth that is contained in it. We thank You for the grace that You give us by supplying truth to our lives. Open our ears that we may hear well. Open our eyes that we may see how we do and don't line up with your teaching. Open our hearts that we might understand deeply what it is that you say to us. And ultimately, God, we pray that you would change our wills, that we might be your people. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Slavery, servanthood is a touchy subject these days. In fact, our culture will say because the Bible... Because even Jesus and Paul got the slavery issue wrong, our culture will say, we can't trust really anything else that this may have to say about cultural mores, what's right, what's wrong, what, what we should and shouldn't follow. Issues about morality, issues about gender, issues about marriage. We can't trust what this says because, they say, the Bible got the issue of slavery wrong. 
Jesus nor Paul nor anybody else really said, you know, you really ought to just end that. And they're right, they don't. Jesus doesn't come out and, and say, free all the slaves, neither does Paul. What's interesting, though, is wherever Christianity has flourished, wherever Christianity has impacted society, when people really live out the, the truth of this book, slavery has ended. Slavery has gone the way of the dinosaur when people actually follow the dictates of this book. But what, what was Paul to do with those millions upon millions of slaves in the New Testament time? Was he just to say, what would have happened if we freed all of those people? Freed them to what? Unemployment, starvation, rioting? No, you see, Christianity is far more concerned with how we respond to life's injustices in here than the circumstances we find ourselves under. Christianity is far more concerned with how we respond in our heart than they are to the injustices of life than our outward circumstances. In a perfect world, yes, there would be no slavery. There would be no injustice. But the Christian ethic points everyone, everyone in here, government officials and citizens, masters, slaves or employers, employees, husbands and wives, parents and children. The Christian ethic points all of us to the cross of Christ to determine how we are supposed to behave. And that's not what the world would say. The world would say we can solve injustice by passing a law or saying don't do this or do do that. And the Bible says something very different, very countercultural. If we change what goes on in here, as we've talked about the last couple of weeks, that eventually will have a greater impact on the culture and society at large. Um, Miroslav Volt said this, The call to follow the crucified Messiah was in the long run much more effective in changing the unjust political, economic, and familial structures than direct exhortation to revolutionize them would ever have been. And that has always been true in society. In fact, what we find, if you think about William Wilberforce and the, the whole slavery issue in England, for years and years and years, year after year after year, he put forth a bill in, in Parliament to end the slave trade, and it was shot down year after year after year. And, and finally he decided, what's got to change is we've got to change people's hearts. And while he didn't stop the political fight for justice... He and, and many of his friends began the spiritual fight for people's lives. And he, he wrote a book which, which sold really, really well and was read far and wide in the British Empire called A Practical View of Christianity. I think that's the name of it. Something similar to that. And it was through that book when he called out people, if you're going to call yourself a believer, this is what that actually should look like. And that, over time, began to change hearts and change lives and change perspectives and change opinions on the slave trade until uh, right before his death, that was finally overturned in Britain in the 1800s. It's far more effective to change hearts than it is 
to pass legislation. We saw that in the Civil War, right? We, we passed legislation to free the slaves. Did that, that help African-American brothers and sisters in the South live better lives? No, because hearts weren't changed. They still suffered greatly at the hands of people whose heart had not been changed. And the government was basically powerless to do anything about that. Now, we, can, we can free them, but we're going to free them to a life of continued pain and misery and unjust treatment in the South for years and years and years. Because hearts weren't changed. The battle was just fought with legislation and not with the gospel. And so Peter says, servants, be subject to your masters. He enters into now a section where he is dealing with really the household. And in the Greco-Roman world, people would look at the household to see if you were good, to see if you were acceptable. So this word for servants, a different word than Paul uses. Paul uses a big general term. This is actually a technical term for a household servant. Not one that works in the field, but one that works in the house. And he says, you are to be submissive to your masters. A a word with a, a broad range of meaning from someone who just owns a slave to use in Revelation and in Acts chapter 4 of Jesus himself or of God himself, the sovereign Lord. And so the idea for us, the application for us, we, we take that, um, that idea that, that master is, is someone who has any legal or social authority over somebody else. So whenever you find yourself in, in someone has any authority over you, the practical application is that we're to submit to that person. And then he says, when do we submit? Well, he says we submit even if they're unjust. That word is, is the, where we get the word scoliosis. It's crooked. We submit even if they're unjust. It's easier, much easier to submit to someone if they're good and kind. But in that word, kind has this connotation of someone who, think about it from the Old Testament, someone who desires mercy and not sacrifice. But it's the perfect boss that, you know, when things aren't going, yeah, you know, you can be a few minutes late, no big deal. Even though there may be set rules and you've signed a contract of what you're supposed to do, it's someone who understands that life gets in the way sometimes and is gracious. That's what that word kind means. It's easy to submit to those kind of people, right? It's easy to fall in line behind someone you know is going to treat you well. That's easy. Peter says, no. The Christian ethic says we submit to people that are crooked, that are unjust. And why do we do that, he says? Verse 19, this is a gracious thing. Literally, it says, for this is grace. That seems awkward, and so we translate it, this is a gracious thing, or maybe some, I think the New American Center said, this finds favor. But literally it is, this is grace. And that's confusing because who is it grace to? Is it grace to the person submitting or is it grace, what does that mean? Peter doesn't say yet. In fact, he doesn't really say it all, but he gives some hints. So why do we do it? It's, it's grace. We'll talk about that in a second. 
So when is it grace? Well, he says that too. Verse 19, this is a gracious thing. When, when you're mindful of God, when your mind is set on God, you endure sorrows while suffering unjustly. Right? It's, it's not grace when you're not enduring those, when you're bucking up against the system, when you're complaining and arguing and whining and griping. It's grace when you endure unjust suffering. Now, what's interesting about this is this phrase is completely countercultural, completely subversive to what would have been going on in the Greco-Roman world. Because he uses the word unjust. And, and in that culture, there's no such thing as a master being unjust to a slave. That's not thought about. That's not considered. Masters can't be unjust. And so what he's saying is, he's saying is, yes, there's even a right behavior for masters. And there's a wrong behavior for masters. He's explaining to these people who are suffering unjustly that, yes, God notices you. You're not just property like the culture says you are. He understands that what you're experiencing is unjust. He gets it. And that's a huge issue in that culture because, again, masters can't be unjust. It's just not a category they thought in. Slaves were property. I can't treat a fence post unjustly. I can't treat a screwdriver unjustly. I can't treat a slave unjustly. And yet Peter is saying, God understands that what you're experiencing is injustice. And I want you to endure up under that anyway. And then he repeats it again. Oh, sorry. Uh, verse 20. For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? Right, that word credit is, is a, a rumor or report. Right? Nobody cares. Nobody's going to be concerned if, if you're sinning. And, and somehow you take your, your punishment that you deserve. Nobody could. That's what should happen. That's normal. But if you do good and suffer for it, and then he repeats it again. This is grace. The exact same phrase. The exact same words. And I'm still scratching my head going, well, what's the grace? Is it two? Who is the grace for? He doesn't say, but then he spends the next several verses quoting heavily from Isaiah 53, which is not an accident. What's Isaiah 53 about? What's the title of that whole section? What do we call that? The suffering servant, right? I'm talking about servants, and now I'm going to give you an example. And, and almost every word in those next few verses come from Isaiah 53 a direct quotation, or allusions. I'm going to show you a picture of what a servant looks like. He says, because to this you were called. Do you like that? I don't like that. I don't want to be called to unjust suffering. <laughs> I don't want to be called to have to endure that. And yet he says, to this you were called. Because Christ also suffered for you, 
leaving you an example. And then he, he goes through and he explains that example. He suffered unjustly at the hands of a cruel master. And who was that cruel master? You know who that was? That was us. Oh, we could, we could blame it on the Jewish leaders. We could blame it on the Romans. But Peter says he bore our sins in his body on the tree. Our sins. We were the unjust master that put Christ on the cross, that made him choose to endure suffering. It was our sin. It was your sin. It was my sin. Right? He suffered for those, and he did that willingly and obediently for those that put him there. And what was the result? What was the result of that endurance of that suffering? It was grace. Now, I don't deny that, that God supplied grace to Jesus, especially in the garden when He needed it. But who was, that, who was the grace for when Jesus endured suffering? It was for the people He suffered for. It was for us. By His wounds, we were healed. Dying to sin, we live to righteousness. Straying, we turned back. Peter doesn't say who the grace is for, but he paints this clear picture. Hey, if you're paying attention at all, the one that we look to for the model of suffering, when he did that, grace was supplied, and it was supplied to the people he suffered for. And so we need to put two and two together for a moment. When we endure under hardship, when we endure under suffering, when we endure under injustice, there is grace. And the person that it's for, the people it's for, is for the people who are treating us unjustly. Now, that doesn't mean God doesn't supply what we need at the time that we need it. But the message of this passage is, as the message of the last several verses, right? Remember, go back to what we read a few days ago. Keep your conduct excellent among the Gentiles. Why? so that they might glorify God in the day of visitation. We do what we do so that they might get a picture of Jesus. They might receive that grace of knowing what our Lord and Savior looks like. We submit to the governing authorities. Why? So that we might put to silence foolish ignorance. They might get a picture of what grace looks like. They might see God living in us. They might see that power that's in these broken vessels and go, Oh, I'm wrong about them. There's no guarantee. Right? There were people that still ignored the cross. There were people that still saw what Jesus did for them and didn't care. But that grace was offered. When you and I endure under unjust suffering, whatever that looks like, citizens to government, employees to employers, slaves to masters, husbands and wives, parents and children, what we are doing is we are presenting a picture of the gospel for the world to see. That's what we're called to. You and I, every one of us in here, from the least to the greatest, the youngest to the oldest, we are called 
to present a picture of the gospel to the world. And where that happens best is in the same way that the best picture was presented, Jesus Christ on the cross. So when we endure under suffering, that paints a picture for the world of grace, of the gospel. That someone's willing to give themselves for someone else. I'm willing to obey you. I'm willing to to submit to you even when you're crooked and cruel and unjust. Grace. It's, It's that love that puts someone else first, even if that someone else is unjust. That's grace. And that's what we've been called to present to the world. And the world is watching. Kids, listen up. From the least to the greatest. Right? When, when you're called to submit to your parents. And sometimes, maybe more often than not, your parents are unjust. They're, they're not right. Or at least you think they're not right. We can debate about whether that's true or not. Um, when you endure under either perceived injustice or real injustice, you're giving your parents grace. And if you do that in public, you're giving the world a picture of what the cross looks like. You're showing Jesus to the world. But when you roll your eyes and sigh and stomp your feet and say no and disobey, and are unkind, and ungracious, what you're communicating to the world, and especially in public, what you're communicating to the world is, I serve a God who really wants His own way, and doesn't care about other people. And that's blasphemy to, to the God of love and graciousness. But it's not just kids, parents... You too, when you complain about the government, when you fail to submit to something that we've been called to as citizens of a particular country, when you complain about employers, when you roll your eyes at anything or anybody that's in authority, whether that's a piece of legislation or a stop sign or an individual, especially when we do that in public, we're communicating to the world that I serve a God who is selfish and wants His own way. Versus communicating to the world that I serve a God who is giving to the extreme. And we need to be careful about how we choose to relate to authority. Because again, what changes our culture is not going to be fighting the battle that's out there. There is a battle that's out there. There's lots of battles that are out there. Important battles. Huge injustices and things that go against what this teaches. And that doesn't mean, like William Wilberforce, that we can't continue to present before our culture what's true and what's right and what's beautiful. We should. But that's not how that battle's going to be won. It's going to be won when we show the world the cross of Christ. That's how that battle's going to be won. It's the only way it's going to be won. And the question is, are we willing to do that? Are we willing to endure the training that is required? You see, anybody, even in junior high, can run that first lap of a mile fairly quickly. 
in all the track meets I ran, most people that entered those races could get that first lap in even under 70 seconds. It was the second and the third and the fourth we find out who really trained. Right? You start out fast because you know there's a bunch of people jockeying for position. But shortly after you make the turn to second lap, we find out who did and didn't train. People become winded because you run the first lap fast so you can get rid of the people that aren't supposed to be there. And for us in the Christian life, sometimes it's easy to start out well. Okay, two or three weeks ago I asked you to read through Galatians 5, to pray through both of those lists, the desires of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Some of you may or may not have done that. You may or may not have found that to be easy or difficult. It may have been fine for a week and maybe even God helped you kind of think through and, and fight those desires as we talked about. But we find in the second and third lap that we become winded. And if we haven't trained, if we haven't endured, if we haven't worked on it, we find that we're falling farther and farther behind. And really, if there's no one watching, we just it's kind of we can step off the track and say, that's too tough. And so the challenge again is, will we endure? Will we train? Right? It, it requires our participation is part of our sanctification. Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's our part. We come before God and say, God, I, I'm not perfect. How do I need to change? And we ask Him... And, and, and we fight that battle, for it is God who works in us to will and act according to His good pleasure. If we're willing to say, God, change me, He will meet us there. If we're actually willing to say, God, I, I want to be more kind. That's the fruit of the Spirit that I think I lack on. God, I want to be more kind. And if you say, God, will you help me be more kind, He will bring to mind... His power in places when you find yourself being unkind. And in His graciousness and in His kindness, He will give you practice. We often, there's that joke, oh, don't pray for patience because you'll get a chance to practice. We kind of laugh at that and say, well, that's a bad thing. No, it's a good thing. Or what would we think about a coach who sent me out to run my very first mile and he never had me train or practice? I'd be throwing up by the third lap right? would be dead. That wouldn't be kind. That would be cruel. So it's God's kindness that He puts us in situations to allow us to practice the fruits of the Spirit, to allow us to fight those desires of the flesh. Now, we should pray, God, show me where I'm wrong. Show me where I'm not following the ways you would want us to do. And then, be prepared and be grateful when He puts you in those positions where you get a chance to practice walking by the Spirit. Where you get a chance to practice those things we talked about a few weeks ago of avoiding that, of saying no, of setting our mind on God instead of the thing that's tempting us, of holding those things in our mind until the temptation flees. Right? If we're not willing to enter into that, we'll never compete in that race. That's what God has called us to. He wants to change our hearts. And He's given us the perfect example to do that. Jesus. 
who again, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. But it's like getting a personal training experience with Sebastian Coe. He's going to come and show up at my junior high track meet and say, hey, follow me. I get to follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He reviled, He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. Oh, and he could have threatened. He's the creator God of the universe. As he told the disciples, I can call down legions of angels if I want to. It's not like he didn't have the power or the authority to put the Romans in their place at that point in time. But continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds, you have been healed. For you, we, all of us, were straying like sheep. My wife's raised sheep. Anybody else had sheep? They're stupid. They're dumb animals. But have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. That's the one we look to. When we think that life is just not fair, we look to Christ, who is the perfect example of how to behave when life is not fair. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for the example of Your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And would You help us this week to fight the battle of sin? Would You remind us this week where we are are feeding the desires of the flesh? Would You show us through the power of Your Spirit where we are not exhibiting the fruits of the Spirit? And then would You give us grace to bear up under the difficulties and the hardships and the struggles of life? And in that process, would you change our hearts that we might be these earthen vessels that display your glory? That the world may see that the power is not of us, but is from you. And that they might turn and glorify you when you come again. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.